Hi, my name is Joe Jackson. I'm a journalist, author, interviewer and broadcaster and a podcaster who has made more than 250 podcasts based on roughly 1,400 interviews I did with celebrities. The full list of my interviewees is on my website, joejacksoninterviewer.com. But over the past six weeks, coming into 2023, the tables have been turned on me, as they say. I've become the interviewee who was interviewed, often on radio, in my homeland of Ireland and in the UK, about my latest book, Richard Harris, Raising Hell and Reaching for Heaven. The best of these interviewers, who I won't single out by name, lest that reflect badly on the others, exhibited two traits I think make a great interviewer, namely an empathetic soul and an ability to truly listen. Something that sadly I think is too often missing among people in general. Some of these interviewers even got me asking further questions about Irish actor and singer and poet and hellraiser and heaven seeker Richard Harris that I hadn't asked in the book. Some made me ask questions about myself as Richard's authorised biographer, authorised by Harris that is, and someone who'd been a lifelong fan of the man. All of this made me decide in the hope that those conversations might fire similar responses in you, the listener, to make a few podcasts based on the interviews I did. Also, on January the 10th, my Harris book, which was published in Ireland and in the UK in November 2022, will finally be available in the United States from local bookstores and on Amazon.com, likewise later in other countries. But I won't be travelling abroad to promote the book. So maybe these conversations about Richard Harris, Raising Hell and Reaching for Heaven, will help you decide if it's a book you want to read or run like hell to avoid. By the way, there will be some repetitions during interviews because certain subjects came up time and again. But you'll hear the interviews as they were broadcast. So let's start. I launched the book in Limerick because that's where Richard was born. And the first interview was on Limerick Live Radio. After that, you'll hear an interview I did with Miriam O'Callaghan on RT Radio 1, a radio station for which I worked for nearly 30 years. But until then, I hadn't met Miriam. Enjoy. Good news for Richard Harris fans. Richard Harris, Raising Hell and Reaching for Heaven. The book is set to come out this Friday, I believe. And there's also a feature-length documentary on Sky Arts this weekend, which we'll be talking more about later with our own Lindanine because he's in it. But Joe Jackson, a close friend of Richard, wrote the book and he joins us this morning. Good morning to you, Joe. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Was that clip Richard Harris from the field? <laughs> Shush, don't be giving hints. But it wasn't, no. Um, uh, nice try. And you can't enter the competition either. Um, but I, know, I, know. I was just looking here. You came to blows nearly with Richard the first time you met him. Is that right? Or tell us about that. Yeah, I. Uh, you mentioned the film there. I'm in the film too. And there is, there's an aspect of the whole film wanting to say there was more to the man than uh, there, there, many people thought there was. I, antis- I knew that before I went to meet him because I was a lifetime fan who had read his poetry, had his albums and watched many of his movies. Many were crap, some were fantastic. So when I saw him on a Jonathan Ross show, I said, here he goes again, giving the same old 10 funny stories, as great as they were. I wanted to present more imprint to the readers of, of the magazine I was working for at the time. 
But he had manipulated the media all his life. He told me the year before he died. He had a performance he put on for journalists. He called it his performance as Richard Harris. I didn't know that then. But before we started, I said, look, you said recently truth can be dull. And I'd prefer today if we went for even murky truth rather than tell colorful lies. And he was eating his breakfast and he said, did I say that? And I said, no, I, I said the, first, the second half. Does it sound like you? And he said, no, you sound pretentious. But let's go ahead. Let's see where it goes. So it started off with that tension. And 20 minutes into it, he really erupted. And he said, you're a funny guy coming in here with all your questions. There are no answers. But something changed then after about 30 minutes. We got totally in tune and we never lost that for the rest of his life. Wow. And how would you describe him as someone who knew him, I suppose, was closer to him than the rest of us? Was he a very different... You mentioned there, he, 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 I suppose he put on a performance depending on the situation he was in. Yeah. How did. would you describe him to the rest of us? Well, you know, there's a lot about him. There's a lot in the movie. A lot about him is, is to me, limerick-based. It's in his DNA. It's in his soul. And I do a podcast called the Joe Jackson Interviews Podcast, and I just finished one. And I call it, you know, Richard Harris was a hellraiser, we know, but he also was reaching for heaven. There's a part in the film where he says, and it's a famous quote, and he used it with Michael Parkinson. He continually said when anyone said, were you running from something when you were drinking? And he said, no, we weren't running from anything. We loved drinking, and that's that. But towards the end of the first interview, I said to him, and it was a heady comment, but he tuned in immediately. I said, to many people, excessive indulgence in drink and sex and drugs is like spitting in the face of death. And he got it immediately, and he said, I agree totally with that. And then he said that his behavior patterns, such as all those excesses, were his attempt to keep at bay his awareness of doom and death. Now, he had, he'd, never, he'd never revealed himself. But it was only at the end of his life that he told me the real lie in that I never ran from anything. He said, I asked him in uh, 2001, I said, you're back on drinking. When did you start again? And he said in 1996 when my brother Jimmy died. And he said, Joe, when my sister Audrey died 50 years earlier, I got a terrible dread of going into the family tomb. Now, I know there are people in Limerick who wonder why he wasn't buried there. And this is the answer to that question. He had a dread of going into the tomb. And I said, but you once wrote a poem in which you stood beside your father's corpse and prayed to him. And he said, I did, but that was in my tubercular room in Overdale where he lived. He said, even when my mother died and my father died, I hid behind a tree. And I said, but what was so terrifying about the tomb? And he said, this, this feeling of going under the earth. Now, you, you think of a boy of 15 getting that dread? And carry that forward to a man of 71 telling me that. And you see, you get a deep insight into the soul of Richard Harris. So wow, very, very I, deep. I, no, but you see, that's how deep he was. Mm. And his public image that we all know was like a defense against people getting to know that. He would not, maybe he wouldn't have wanted me to say that this morning on the radio in Limerick, right? But it was the part of him he kept hidden from most people. And recently I met, and it's a blessing in my life, his brother, Noel. And Noel said to me, Joe, I think you got to know him better than even members of his family because I didn't know Richard was like that. He didn't know Richard was very religious at the end of his life. So there are all the aspects I explore in the book. And that's the Richard I love talking to for hours. Our last conversation lasted 14 hours. 14 hours? Yeah. 
Yeah, we went from an interview to a pub, but we just kept talking. The man, for whatever reason, opened up to me in a way that few interviews. I've interviewed about 1,400 celebrities, and Richard just opened up in a way that I know he didn't to anybody else, and a few other interviewees did to me. So that's the, now that's a complicated answer to your question, but that was the side of Richard Harris I grew to love and grew to know, and he was my friend. Sounds like a lot of layers there, and you got to peel back some layers that others didn't. Well, um, yeah, because a lot of people don't know even that he published a book of poetry or he won a Grammy for his reading of Jonathan Livingston's Seagull. You know, they don't know there are these other dimensions. He was a great writer. He wrote, he wrote great poems. He wrote them from the age of nine, secretly in Limerick, and hid them under his bed because he didn't want people to think he was a bit soft writing poetry. So there was always that tendency to hide his more sensitive side and to be sometimes the obnoxious bully, the brawler, the womanizer, the drunk. All of those things, but yet he comes across as very intelligent as well. Like there's so many characteristics there. Um, The the research um, and and a lot of your material for your book was on taped interviews. Is that right? From the late 80s to 2001. Did that take a lot of time to go through all of that and to get the best for this book? Well, a lot of it is in the film. I mean, Adrian Tibbley is the director of the film and the ghost in the film is voiced from my tapes. So every time Richard says, and he says things as deep as you and I are talking about now, that's him talking to me in 87 or 89 or 90 or 91. So, yeah, it was Adrian himself picked out maybe the 18 minutes that are running the narration of his 106-minute film. For me, it was hell over the past year because a lot of stuff I didn't share with Adrian. They were private calls. Richard would call me from the Bahamas. He'd be angry at somebody and he'd sound off for an hour. And he'd know I'd tape it and I'd say, good night, Richard, good morning. So it was very hard going through all that. But I found some astounding clips that I'd forgotten and really revealing positions he took, particularly in relation to Limerick. There is in the Limerick leader on the 25th a part of the first chapter, which is him attacking Frank McCourt. But he's also explaining why he hated people saying that the Harrises were the elite and they looked down their noses at the poor. And he explains why that to him is not a truth. So when I found all those clips again, I went, this has to be in a book. You know, I have to tell the story. And it's mostly his own words. I give him pages of dialogue. And is this the closest we're going to get to Richard Harris's full story? Absolutely. You know, there's no... uh, because he never disclosed those those aspects of his character to anybody else. And one reason he did was that the end of that first uh, interview where he turned on me, he said at the end, I told him at the end that my goal was just to show people he, he was multidimensional rather than one-dimensional. And he then said, would you write a skeleton script for a one-man show based on the same idea? So a lot of the stuff he was telling was also for a show he intended to do. Uh, but it was also in 1989, he phoned me up and he said, will you become my official biographer? And I said, yeah. So those like 14 hours of conversations or six hours on a couple of subjects, he'd say, keep this for the book. Don't put it in the Irish Times. Don't put it in the Sunday Independent. So there were tons of material there that was meant specifically for the book you now can buy. And why now the book? Well, why now? Yeah. Because it's, because it's tied in tangentially to the film. It's not the book of the film because, you know, I didn't even let, we say, the Harrises read the book. It was almost like I have to tell Richard's story the way he wanted me to tell it. 
So when I knew the film was coming out and that I was going to be an associate producer, which I am, I'm interviewed in the film, and his voice is based on my tapes, I thought, why not have a book ready for the same time? The same time. It also is his 20th anniversary. So I thought this is the best time to do good, it. Good right timing. Time it. So yeah. sounds fascinating. Um, tell us where we can get our hands on the book. Well, I'm very happy to say that uh, it's, uh, O'Mahony's have been very helpful. I, uh, I'm si- doing a signing with them on Saturday afternoon. I want. I did a show in Limerick in 2016 called Richard Harris Revisited, which Jared Harris introduced. And this book is an, is an elaboration of that show. So I love doing the start of it all in Limerick always, in his memory, and because my mother once told me that her grandfather was called Limerick Jack and came from Limerick. So I'm tipping the hat back to her. So on Saturday afternoon, I'll be kind of launching it in O'Mahony's and they will post it anywhere around the world, you know. So they sell it, but it's also available anywhere uh, on Amazon. It's in all bookshops from yesterday morning. Fantastic. Well, Joe Jackson, thanks a million for joining us on the show this morning. Richard Harris, Raising Hell and Reaching for Heaven is out now. Richard Harris was perhaps the greatest actor this country has ever produced. He was also a Grammy award-winning recording artist and a published poet. He also, however, had a fearsome reputation as a drinker and a womanizer. He once said of himself, I have always played a double game, one in public, the other in private. Well, towards the end of his life, in a series of extended interviews, he told his story to his friend, the writer Joe Jackson, who has condensed their conversations into his just-published book, Richard Harris, Raising Hell and Reaching for Heaven. And Joe Jackson joins me now in studio. Morning, Joe. Hello, Miriam. Yeah, great read. Listen, you might begin by taking us back, if you will, to Richard Harris's early life in Limerick. Tell us a little about his family and where he grew up. Uh, He was born and raised in Overdale, though an interesting thing he told me that hadn't been revealed before, and he was as interested in probing his own psychology and psyche as I was. was. And he said that he was one of... And I talked to his brother Noel, who's the the only remaining sibling recently, and he didn't know this. Richard said he was the only member of the family who wasn't born at home because one of his sisters was ill, so he was born in a aunt's house, and he was left there when the mother came back home, obviously, to take care of the other children. He was one of eight. So he said, I wonder if that added to my restlessness. Mm. And because he bought houses and sold them and he, he had houses and he lived in a hotel. So he says, nobody can know, but I wonder was that part of my history and my psychology. So as I say, he was part of a family of eight in Overdale in Limerick. And uh, he made some interesting observations to me the very first time we talked about this. I know a Dory Previn song called uh, I Smiled and Smiled and Smiled to Please My Father. And it was about how she danced to catch the attention of her mother and smiled to please her father, whichever it was. And I said to him, do you feel you did a tap dance for your parents from an early age? And he picked up on it immediately. Mm -hmm. And he had the feeling that he was the favourite child and they all were when you're born. But when the next one comes along, you slip out of the spotlight. Because he always said he was the outsider in the family. So Noel says not so. But Richard felt that way. And if he felt that's what, mm. that way, that's what he was shaped upon. He was a good rugby player, but his career in rugby, it came to an end, didn't it? Yeah, he, it came to an end because he got TB when it was rife in the country and he was confined to his room. And to me, the most interesting aspect of that is, and I think it was a truth he revealed to me the first time we talked, he lost faith in people 
because friends stopped calling. Now, he said he understood that they would say, oh, I've worked all week, I want to go out Saturday night, I don't want to sit with this sick guy. Mightn't we catch TB if we sit in his room? The windows never open. Mm. So slowly he felt all the friends disappear. And as they disappeared, he withdrew into himself. He discovered Stanislavski, he read Shakespeare. And that's where the, he had uh, he performed on stage in, in Kilkee. But he became serious about acting at that stage. And to go back to the previous point where he felt like the middle child mm. left out, he admitted to me at one point that he believes he became an actor to get his mother and father to basically say, we have a child called Dickie. That's him there. Look, up on stage. We're proud of him. Mm. So I think that was the part of the impulse that drove him forward. But he couldn't become the rugby player he longed to be. But being born and raised in Limerick, being a rugby player, winning a few matches, being part of what he called a tribal city, being a fighter, being, you know, a parish against parish, them against any county outside, <laughs> them against every other country if they fought, that was a huge part of his fighting nature. And people never got that. He was, a, he was a fighter from the moment before he left Ireland. So when he went to England and created Havoc, we could have said, well, what's news? And isn't it true, Joe, that his love for rugby and his passion for Munster rugby in particular, he, is it true that he did say he'd have given up all his awards in acting if he could have played once for Ireland? Well, yeah. yeah, yeah. When I heard him say that, right, yeah. I remembered another quote he made where he was always criticised for giving up the theatre. And, and in, particularly in London, it would be, why didn't you do Stratford? Why didn't you do Shakespeare? Why didn't you do legitimate theatre for your life? And Richard said to me a year before he died, he said it was easy for them to say that. He said he was offered Oedipus Rex at Stratford and he said, I turned it down. He said, I would have gotten only £500 a week. How am I going to keep my family alive on £500 a week? So I think the idea of being a, a rugby player for a specific amount of years as opposed to getting £12 million for the Harry Potter movies <laughs> at the end, I think there's a bit of self-romanticising in that. I don't know that he... He loved it I with a great you. passion. But I don't know that he would have given up to Hollywood and all the stuff for, the, for, for that. He spoke to you, didn't he, Joe, about the death of his sister, Audrey, and I suppose how big a wrench do you think her death was in his young life? And what happened to Audrey? Cancer. OK. And how and old were they, would she have been? 21. OK, wow. Donahoe Mally, she was, she was engaged to Donahoe Mally at the oh. time. Wow. That had more of a rupture in Richard's psyche than even his sons realised or his family realised because I don't think he talked about it too often. You know, I was the associate. You had uh, Jared Harris on, and I thank, mm. I thank you for the comment you made on there about my journalism. Uh, but um, the, what they left out of the film, they had this thing where Richard said he loved drinking because mm. he, he enjoyed it and I wasn't running from anything. That was his line. And I said to him, look, Richard, a lot of us regard excessive indulgence in sex, drugs and drink as spitting in the face of death. He, he said that his behaviour patterns were dictated largely by his ever-constant awareness of impending doom and death. And he said it was when his brother Jimmy died in 1996, and he said, I went back to the Mount St. Lawrence Cemetery in Limerick, and for the first time in 50 years, I went down into the family tomb. And he said that when Audrey died, when he was 15, he immediately got a terror, not just of death, and not even specifically of death, but of being buried under the earth. So he said that for the rest of his life, now think of this image of Richard Harris, the boozing brawler fighter who'd kill you with a headbutt. Whenever he went to even the funeral of his mother, 
of father, he hid behind a tree. He, de he determined at the end that he would not be buried in the family tomb. And I know people in Limerick are upset by that. Someone recently told me that one of his old friends went to the tomb and said he's not there and cursed the family and said, why am I going? Richard didn't want to be buried in the family tomb. He wanted his ashes scattered. The where, I think it may have been in Kilkee mm -hmm. and in the Bahamas. But that, that's, that's how profound an influence. He also, and it's another point you mentioned at the start, at that age of nine or 15, he wrote two beautiful poems about his parents. And he hid these, these away, which to me is his tendency to hide his softer, sensitive self. They're beautiful poems. One is looking at his mother on the phone and she's crying. So I said to him in, in 2001, I said, why were they crying? And he said, if I'm remembering right, that was the night they got the news about uh, Audrey's that she was going to die. Mm. So he that's how so that's how sensitive he was at 15 and that goes against the entire image. Oh, and you, you sorry you quoted at the start I lived a double life. Mm. That that was a quote from his poetry book. And he was basically saying the double life is the public image you have of me but the real me is in this book. And I read that book when he released it. And that's when I got the sense this man is way darker of heart than I've ever heard. Did you like him? I did, yeah. I mean, I also hated him. He was a very, you know, he, he was, he could be hugely narcissistic. And he, I remember joking to him. I said, Richard, when he wanted me to go to the Bahamas and work on his book. I said, Richard, if I was in the Bahamas and I dropped dead on the beach walking with you, you'd say, you can't die yet, Joe, not until you finish my book. And he said, I probably would. So there was that element of entitlement about him and the way he, he, he would get very angry if things didn't go his way. And he and I nearly came to blows, not just the first time we met, but subsequently when he'd try and coerce me into putting things in the Irish Times or whatever, and I'd just stand up against him. So there was that side of him. And he had an attitude to women that I found totally re reprehensible. And I told him that from the outset. I said, how do you feel, you know, being regarded as a dinosaur? And he joked, I'm not that old. And I said, you are in terms of your attitude to women. And because I'd heard these quotes he made in the 70s, women should have thoughts and not be allowed to express them. But did he really believe that? Uh, there was a part of him, because when I talked to Jim Webb about him after that... The singer-songwriter, oh, yeah. Oh, sorry, the, yeah, yeah. the singer-songwriter, who had written MacArthur Park with Tramp Shining yeah. and, and who had a very close relationship with him for a number of years. He said, after the divorce with Liz, Richard was going through his misogynistic phase. And that's when he made those comments. Okay. So there was aspects of him at that level that I thought, these are really ugly. Was he proud of his performances as an actor? He began, didn't he, in The Queer Fellow? Is that, is that, that how his that was one of his breaks. That, that was, break? Yeah, that was one of his breaks in, in UK theatre. But I mean, the, the, the first film break was The Sporting Life. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's where everything coalesced and he, became, he was recognised nationally and internationally. And he won a Cannes Film Award he as was Best Actor. That. I think that's a staggering film. Mm. I looked at it again recently. But you, if you look at it again, I have an entire chapter on it. It's called The Sporting Life Revisited in the book. If you look at it again and you realise now we know Lindsay Anderson, the director, was in love with him. There are a lot of resonances going on in that film that a lot, people would not have noticed at the time. So, so it's fascinating to watch it now knowing that history. But he was super... I think that... We, and he said to me, he made 70 films and he said, at the end, he said, Joe, I've done six films I'm proud of. And certainly The Sporting Life was one of them. He thought it was one of his best performances Was he proud ever. of the field? Very proud of the field. He you said know? to you, didn't he, Joe, as well, that... You know, he wanted to shape the bull his own way, kind of as um, a mythical epic hero of King Lear proportions almost. Yeah, yeah. That didn't make 
John became very happy. You know, because Keane... And, and there's a strong argument, and we had that about it. The play was originally about a community lying to cover up a murder. But Richard, because he had this fascination with playing King Lear, I, and I argued it with him, so I'm not saying anything I didn't put to his face. I said, you imposed King Lear on the field. So I think uh, Richard did see uh, the Bull McCabe as my King Lear. Yeah, but, but he also worked brilliantly, of course. It, it, well, it, to, it totally was, but there. But Keane did say to him that he turned it into a one-person tour de force as his goodbye to cinema, and wasn't happy that he and and someone like an, art, an actor like Patrick Bergen once said to me, uh, Harris fractured the field with his ego because he wanted it to be all just about the bull's tensions. I don't agree with that. I think his sensitivity in that scene by the window and just and his power when he erupted. There you have Richard Harris, the two sides of him on film. You mentioned earlier to me, Joe, you know, his attitude to women that at times you deeply disliked it. And yet he was married twice to Anne Turkell and Elizabeth Reese Williams. And yet, you know, when he died from lymphatic cancer in 2002, you point out both women were at his bedside. So after all his womanising, he managed to have the two women he loved who loved him by his bedside when he died. From what I know, I know Anne Turkell at first told the story that she flew over, she was there in time, and beside him she said, don't go yet. She since has given an interview to say that that was a bit of myth-making, that she turned up a day after. But the real point is your point. They both loved him deeply, and, and they were great friends. He said that they were, particularly Elizabeth, but Elizabeth and Anne, he said to me, Joe, don't ever doubt that I loved Anne Turkell and I loved Elizabeth Harris. And, he, you know, he, the fact that Anne Turkell didn't have a daughter, which he longed for since 1959, when, he, when, when Elizabeth, or whenever it was, when, when Elizabeth had her first child, he really wanted Anne to have the daughter he longed for, and she wanted to have a child for him. And uh, the fact that she didn't, I think, is what ended their relationship in the end. But they remained absolutely close, and Elizabeth was probably his greatest friend. Now, the title of your book, Joe, Richard Harris, Raising Hell and Reaching for Heaven. We know about the first part. We've spoken about that. But talk to me about the second. Do you think, was he religious? Yeah, this was the, this is a big shock for many people. Again, as I said, even his brother, Noel Harris, said, I didn't know that about Richard. And I said, when Richard went through, when Richard made the field in Connemara and wherever the locations, he went through an existential crisis. Like he was hitting 60, which is going to bring a lot of things into focus for any of us, you know, but he was out in the wilderness and he told me, he said, I would walk on my own in the rain. It was gorgeous. It was wonderful. And he said, I would hear. And he said, I was wondering, is this God talking to me saying, you must come home. This is where you belong. You should not be anywhere else. And he'd say, I'd listen and then something else would pull me away. Now, I think that was the core schism in Richard Harris's soul. His soul was here in Ireland, his body moved elsewhere. And I put that to him and he said, you've got it in a nutshell. So he, he did become deeply religious again. And there was a great quote he gave me in 1990 where I asked him about, you know, do you believe in God? And he said, I would hate to come to the end of my journey and find out that what we all were searching for all along was a sense or a sight of God. It would really upset me if that hadn't happened. And he said he prayed daily, he, pray, he prayed nightly. And 11 years later, I asked him the same thing, and he was more articulate about it. He said, I'm hoping, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that there's something up there that is kind and generous and welcoming. 
but he was absolutely deeply religious. And in the end, he believed that even his acting and the way he responded to classical music and poetry, it all had to come from a higher power. He said it can't come from just an evolution of a spirit of a person in the jungle. He said it all comes from, I believe, I, I happen to believe it comes from God. So yeah. it, that surprises most people mm. that for the last dozen years he was on that, uh, that spiritual journey, yeah. trying to make his peace before he died. As we come to the end of our interview, you got to know him so well, Joe. He trusted you, obviously, to write his book because he didn't trust anyone else to do it. Do you think in the end, and it sounds like a kind of a bland word, but do you think he was happy in the end of his life? Was he a happy person? Yeah, I said that to him because that point where he said, you know, he was torn, his soul was in Ireland and his body was elsewhere. And so at the end I said is that not still you? How could you be at peace if that's who you are? And he said, I've settled for that. He said, I've settled for being a dislocated spirit. And I also made, there was a few quotes they used in the film, though they were, they were not put in the context he made them, whereby he said, he's come to the realisation that you don't cast out your demons. You live with them. And he said they, they lived with him in the Savoy Hotel and when they overpowered him, he took out a notebook. He was writing a play at the end of his life about his life. And he said, I write it all down into a play. But he, you know, there's a part of him that wanted peace, that said the only way you could, you could find God is to find peacefulness. That if you find God, you find peacefulness. There was another part of him eternally at war that wanted to stay at war because it fed his creativity. Well, Joe Jackson, it's a fascinating read. Your book is called Richard Harris, Raising Hell and Reaching for Heaven. It's published by Merriam Press and it's available now. Thanks, Joe, for coming Thank in. Thank you very much. A great book. Thank you very much, Miriam. I appreciate that. Thank you. Hi, Joe Jackson here again. I thank you for listening to this edition of the Joe Jackson Interviews podcast. If you want to check out some of my articles, look at my website, joejacksoninterviewer.com, and my book, Richard Harris, Raising Hell and Reaching for Heaven, is available from all the places I mentioned earlier, and soon in the USA and elsewhere.